Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. In this episode, we bring you a recording from a recent event where our Associate Director, Robin Davies, provided a comparative assessment of post-2015 development frameworks. The presentation slides are available at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you all for coming to this seminar. It's great to see so many people here and such interest in this important topic. Uh, So my name is Stephen Howes and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre. It's my pleasure to welcome you here on behalf of the Centre and the Crawford School. And uh, let's also, at the start of proceedings, acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, So we organise lots of uh, seminars, as you know, if you get our newsletters and we harass you through that or other means. And uh, often it's uh, people approach us and they want us to put on an event, and uh, we're very happy to do that, of course. That's part of our role. But I guess we're particularly happy uh, when we can put on an event like this, when we can actually uh, share with you some of our research and uh, make our contribution uh, to the uh, policy debate. So today's a good example of this uh, because this reflects work by uh, one of our our key faculty, Robin Davies, on um, uh, this subject of what to do after 2015 with the MDGs. Uh, It's still a work in progress, so uh, I know Robin's looking forward uh, to your feedback. Um, But yeah, I just want to emphasise, we hope to be doing more of this to be able to share with you you our research, uh, get your feedback and then uh, take this forward and make a contribution, whether it's a national or international policy issue. Uh, So I'm sure Robin uh, doesn't really need any introduction. Um, Many of you will know him. He uh, had a uh, long and uh, stellar career with AusAid in a range of positions. And then we were very fortunate uh, last year that uh, he came over here to the Development Policy Centre. And uh, since the start of this year, he's been the Associate Director so Robin works on a wide range of areas, but especially focusing on what we call our third pillar, which is the international development policy pillar, and uh, that's where this fits. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Robin. I've uh, you know, kind of suggested to him, he's agreed, I think that he'll stick to about 40, 45 minutes, and then that will leave time for questions and answers. All right, so please welcome Robin Davies. All right, thanks, Stephen. I'm sure many in the audience will agree with the, the long part. I'm not sure about the stellar part. And uh, as Stephen said, look, there's a lot you can say on the subject. I've, I'm working from quite a long piece of work. I've tried to pull out the essentials, and I hope I can uh, confine myself to 40, 45 minutes and just, just allow time for some feedback, which I'd be very keen to get. Um, so, look, what I'm going to do is talk in quite broad terms. Um, that's not going to work about the post-2015 international development framework, um, by which I mean that the whole structure of uh, goals, targets, indicators um, that will succeed the Millennium Development Goals when they expire in 2015. Um, I want to keep the focus on the the whole construct, uh, not on the component parts, um, at least most of the time. Um, my main interest is is really in the sort of high-level engineering um, of the the post. 2015 framework. Um, The question being, if you want to have a new framework, how do you build it so that people will actually want to to use it, um, taking into account 
the experience uh, of the MDG framework. Now, it would be possible to have that discussion on the basis of, of the experience with the MDG framework, but there's actually now a lot more to, to go on. Um, in recent times, there have been several um, integrated proposals for post-2015, post-MDG frameworks, um, all of which take a more aerial view. They don't get bogged down in the weeds about individual goals, targets, indicators. Um, so in this talk, I want to give you my general assessment um, of the extent to which some of these new frameworks meet some reasonable adequacy criteria. So my overall conclusion is basically that while some important steps have been taken in these new frameworks, um, they also perpetuate or actually aggravate some of the problems that afflict the existing MDG framework. So to establish a sort of baseline for the discussion, I'll, I'll start by having a look at the MDG framework. Um, I'll look at how it fares against some adequacy criteria that I'll define. Um, and at the end, after I've talked about the new frameworks and looked at them against the same criteria, I'll make a few broad suggestions about how the rules of the, the post-MDG game, as, as I'm calling it, might be better defined um, so as to increase the chances of it reaching a a useful conclusion. So to begin with, let's just very quickly rehearse um, half a dozen of the most salient features of the existing framework, the MDG framework. I won't labour this, I'll, I'll go through this quite quickly. Um, so it, it comprises eight largely pre-existing aspirational goals um, which emerged from a whole series of, of UN summits through the 1990s. Um, and 21 targets now, originally 18, um, uh, also emerging from those same events. Um, it was first drawn together, in fact, by the OECD Development Assistance Committee in '96, um, which was particularly attracted to the, to the, the notion of results-driven development and wanted to bring the existing political commitments together into a, a coherent whole that might actually motivate... Um, political action, particularly on aid volume. Uh, then, of course, it moved across to the UN context in 2000. At that point, the, uh, the goals and targets acquired a common baseline year, 1990, a common target year for most of them, 2015, and uh, a set of indicators which has been tinkered with ever since. And the key thing at that point, the, the framework became um, perceived as integrated, the goals became perceived as mutually enabling. The standard formulation there is that the goals and targets are interrelated and should be seen as, as a whole. Now, um, though the framework was adopted in 2000, um, it continued to take shape for some years after that. Um, and it also took hold quite slowly um, in, in donor countries, particularly slowly in Australia, as many of you will, will recall. Um, but ultimately it became far more prominent in, uh, in discourse than, than most people, including the architects of the, uh, the MDGs, had expected. Um, I won't give you a progress report. Uh, you're all aware some, some targets have been achieved. No goals have been achieved in their entirety. Um, one target's been missed. And for the rest, the probability ranges from you know, pretty good to impossible. Um, one thing that I'll, I'll be coming back to... Uh, one of the goals in particular is of quite a different character from the rest. Uh, MDG 8, uh, the Global Partnership for Development, as it's called, is quite different in kind. Uh, 
in that it sets out the obligations of developed countries toward developing countries. Um, and it also lacks quantitative targets. Okay. Now, a lot's been said about the adequacy or otherwise of the NDG framework. There's a, there's a huge amount you can, uh, you can read on that. Um, in assessing its adequacy, people most often talk about its relative simplicity um, and therefore its utility for communication purposes. Um, they talk about its incompleteness with respect to contemporary development priorities. And they often talk about the way in which it was developed, uh, the very exclusive way in which it was developed, which is seen as pretty technocratic, non-transparent and, and donor-driven. Um, that's a reasonable way of assessing the framework, but I'm going to do it uh, against some slightly more general criteria, which are these three. So relevance, coherence, effectiveness. So the relevance question is that. Um, is anything absolutely missing or so poorly specified as to, as to miss matters of really fundamental importance? The coherence question is that. Do the goals display what I'm calling narrative consistency and are they mutually reinforcing? Does, does the framework hang together? And third, does the framework have what I'm going to call motive force for governments and non-government actors um, so that they actually do things they weren't going to do anyway? Is there additionality? So those are the sort of adequacy criteria that I want to apply. So using those three dimensions of assessment, let's have a quick look at how the MDGs have, have performed. All right. So the MDGs are generally thought to suffer from a pretty large relevance deficit um, because they leave out so many things that are important for um, global, national or human development. Um, even including some things specified in the Millennium Declaration to which they were originally attached. So let's just have a look at some of those. This is not going to work. There. Let's just have a look at some of those omissions. So there's five things that are very commonly uh, noted as absent from the MBGs. There are probably many others that you could list, but that's just a, a, a quick sense of uh, what is not there. Uh, in addition, the, the MBGs are sometimes also criticised for using an unduly narrow notion of, policy, of, of poverty, the, the $1.25 a day notion of poverty. Um, and they're generally felt to do a pretty poor job on climate change, environmental protection and sustainable resource management, in, in a word, sustainability. Now, from one perspective, the most important relevance deficit, um, taking in several of those items that I showed a moment ago, relates to the how of development. Um, roughly speaking, the means as opposed to, to the end, some of the enablers of, of development. So from that perspective, the MDGs should perhaps have included goals relating to the, the precursors or the enablers of development rather than confining themselves to human development outcomes. Um, support for regional institutions, for example, um, or the development of uh, national revenue enhancement measures uh, might fall into that category. 
these things are not ends in themselves by any means in the way that freedom to carry on one's life without fear of violence is an end in itself. But without these things, some countries will never begin to make sustained progress toward the MDGs. The G7 plus group of fragile states often makes that point, um, arguing that enabling goals would have to be defined and resourced before fragile states could realistically be expected to achieve um, the MDGs or similar final goals. So part of the argument there is that in the absence of any specification of enabling goals, um, the MDGs might in fact induce a, a diversion of resources um, away from some of the structural enablers of, of uh, development in low-income countries. So in short, a lot of stuff is missing from the MDGs and some of what's missing is probably a casualty of that disputed view that the MDGs should be about ends and not about means. I should say though that at least one influential observer, Bill Gates, is more than happy for a lot of stuff to remain missing. This is what Bill Gates had to say in his annual letter last year. He likes the coherence of the MDGs. Um, they make it clear who needs to work together. And if the UN is going to start looking for similar forms of agreement on other priorities, particularly mitigating climate change, his preference is, is that it should be done uh, through a separate process. Right? So that's a, that's a view that's around. So that, that quote from Gates leads nicely to a point about the, the coherence of the uh, MDGs. So the MDGs, as he said, might be thought to have a pretty high degree of narrative consistency, um, derived from the fact that they, they really started life as a set of goals for, for aid. That starting point helps to give them a consistent narrative standpoint. And if we want, we can also think of the MDGs as goals for the governments of developing countries supported by aid, or we can think of them as goals for the citizens of developing countries, um, because their goals should be the development goals of their governments um, and also the goals of aid. So in other words, we can associate several different narrative standpoints with the MDGs, um, but in each case the one standpoint applies to them all. Um, so I suspect that in general people, or at least people outside donor agencies, actually think of the MDGs as articulating the aspirations um, of the poor, and I'd speculate this is what, what has made them so powerful and uh, contributed to their, their slightly surprising level of uptake. But in saying that, I'm, I'm bracketing two exceptions. Um, now, MDGs 7 and 8, which you'll recall look like that. Um, so MDG 7 is basically a, a mix of targets for the global commons um, and targets for human development. MDG 8, as I noted a moment ago, it's a set of targets relating to the duties of developed countries toward developing countries, encompassing aid and policy coherence for development. So unlike the other goals, these two aren't simply goals for poor people um, or for their governments or for external aid. These two goals introduce enabling elements uh, in the form of international and global public policy goals um, into the MDGs. So they're not about the desired end state of the development process for people, they're about how development can be promoted and sustained. 
So they're different in kind from the other goals and, and therefore they tend to reduce the narrative consistency of the MDGs. Um, and I suspect it's that fact, more than the fact that their targets are so vague, um, that has caused MDG 8 in particular and the sustainability elements of MDG 7 to be pushed uh, quite far into, into the background. Okay, so now let's have a, a quick look at the effectiveness of the MDG framework. And various attempts have been made to assess the impact of the MDGs in general. Um, in, in principle, those impacts could, could occur in four main areas. Development-related discourse, donor and partner country practices, resource mobilisation and allocation, and development outcomes, the most important. Now, there's, there's no question that the MDGs have achieved a, a large impact on development-related discourse uh, when compared with earlier attempts to, to propagate international development goals in a, in a more piecemeal fashion. Um, it's also very clearly the case that the MDGs have provided a useful framework for uh, national development strategies, um, facilitating planning, reporting and public communication. Um, the UN UNDP has estimated that out of the 118 countries they surveyed, um, about 86% had incorporated at least some elements of the MDGs into national development planning frameworks. So as for resource mobilisation, um, nobody has claimed to be able to demonstrate any causal relationship between observed uh, changes in aid levels during the, the MDG era. Um, and the adoption of the MDGs. The increases in aid that commenced around 2000 and continued basically until 2010 um, could well have been brought about not by the MDGs um, but by the same sentiments and contextual factors that, that led people to adopt the MDGs in, in the first place. Um, however, it's certainly plausible that the adoption of the MDGs influenced the allocation of aid um, to development sectors and to mechanisms, uh, particularly multilateral mechanisms. Um, it, it's quite common to hear the MDGs blamed for a stagnation in uh, donor investment in the, the productive sectors and also for a, a trend towards verticalisation um, in the allocation of aid resources. Now, the key question is whether the MDGs have had an impact at the level of development outcomes. And here the, the facts of the matter are, are actually disputed. So some have found some evidence that, um, that the MDG era has seen accelerated progress toward most MDGs, at least among the least developed countries and, and in sub-Saharan Africa, um, with at least half or more of those countries accelerating on at least four of the MDGs. But that finding has been contradicted just in the last couple of weeks, actually, by a um, Columbia University researcher um, on, on leave from the UN, and I'm not sure he's welcome back, who found no evidence at all of accelerated progress against MDG indicators since 2000, though there was some acceleration against some of those indicators which began just before 2000. Now, given the way the MDG targets were devised, it would actually be a bit surprising to find acceleration uh, in most cases. The MDG targets were generally arrived at, as people are aware, simply by extrapolating from historical trends. Now, that obviously isn't a very ambitious way of doing it, um, unless the extrapolation somehow gets botched, 
leading to the accidental adoption of, a, of an ambitious target. And apparently that happened with the uh, maternal mortality target under MDG 5, reduced by three quarters over 25 years. Okay, so that's the first main criticism of the MDGs on effectiveness grounds, that they lack ambition and therefore don't deliver additionality. Now, a second criticism of the MDGs that can be made on effectiveness grounds um, sounds contrary to the first, but, but it isn't. The criticism is that the MDGs are Procrustean, that they involve too much of a stretch for many countries. Um, here the concern is that, that what were originally global goals and targets uh, have come to be applied to um, every developing country. So for countries with quite dismal starting points, um, this effectively sets a much higher bar than was originally intended. A country could show quite impressive development progress um, while still being assessed as off-track against um, global proportional reduction targets. To give just one example there, um, Malawi reduced its infant mortality rate from 209 per 1,000 live births to 111 between 1990 and 2007. That's an impressive achievement by any means, but it didn't achieve the two-thirds reduction necessary to be considered on track um, to achieve MDG 4. So, just to, to sum up that assessment against uh, my three adequacy criteria. So, the MDGs... Whoops, we've gone to the wrong slide, sorry. So the MDGs, um, from many perspectives, are full of holes, but they've, they've captured the imagination of, of public policy makers and, to a lesser extent, uh, the, the broader population. Um, that's in part because they, they do exhibit a degree of narrative consistency, as Bill Gates remarks, at least if you ignore one or two of the, the seven goals. Um, the MDG framework probably aided resource mobilisation and influenced resource allocation, um, but it, on the other hand, it might simply have reflected underlying trends. The framework might or might not have affected development outcomes, um, but it certainly wasn't constructed in a way that would lead you to expect that. And then finally, the way global targets were simply read across to the national level uh, <coughs> severely limited the effectiveness of the framework in um, national settings. <coughs> So, overall, if, if you believe in maintaining or increasing aid, a successor to the MDG framework is probably worth having with some repairs. A well-constructed post-MDG framework would probably do nothing to reverse the global aid downturn that we now face, um, if only for timing reasons, but it could conceivably help to accelerate a recovery in aid volume from 2015. At the same time, failure to agree on a new framework is not out of the question by any means um, and, and could be damaging in itself. So for that reason, it'll be important somehow to ensure that whatever framework comes to the, the front of the pack um, over the next couple of years maximises relevance, coherence and effectiveness in the, in the face of a lot of countervailing pressures. So... Let's move on to have a look at uh, the, the new crop of frameworks. Um, first, very briefly, um, I just want to outline the range of 
post-MDG processes that are currently underway in the UN. I'm not going to labour this. It's just fascinating to have a look at it. There, there are no less than seven things um, either recently completed or underway, um, which I will just quickly flash up. There you go, seven. Um, don't ask me why there are so many. Uh, there is some logic here. The, you've essentially um, already seen the report of the high-level panel of eminent people on the post-2015 agenda, um, which is your standard high-level panel approach, which is about building, I guess, political legitimacy for a set of ideas. Some of these other processes are about getting inputs from particular communities. The scientific community, in the case of the second, the, the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, this was a process led by Jeffrey Sachs. The UN system ta task team process, which is ongoing, that's, that's essentially getting a view from within the UN system. It's quite a credible process, actually. The UN open working group process, which is ongoing, um, is, you know... A, a, a view from sovereign governments, um, an intergovernmental negotiation. The global compact process is getting a view from the private sector, and then, then the Secretary-General is looking for financing perspectives um, and uh, has been um, engaged in a, a very extensive uh, global consultation process which claims to have reached about a million people, including through the My World online survey, though a remarkable number of survey responses came from one country in Africa. So, oh, by the way, outside these UN processes, um, there was a, a set of so-called Bellagio goals was, was also developed um, during 2012, a little bit into 2013, uh, by the Centre for International Governance Innovation uh, and the Korea Development Institute. In fact, we had a presentation uh, for, from Won Hyuk Lim last year um, on the Bellagio goals. So basically, at this stage, we have four post-MDG frameworks on the table. Um, the first is, as I've said, the report of the high-level panel of eminent persons, um, that document. The second um, is the report of the Leadership Council of the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, led by Jeff Sachs, that document. Uh, the third is the uh, interim report of the UN System Task Team, this document. And the fourth is the one that I've just mentioned, uh, the, uh, the Bellagio goals, um, mostly set out in here, but there was some refinement that took place after this particular document was, was complete. So that's essentially the list of frameworks that I'm, you know, that's the universe of frameworks that I'm, I'm looking at uh, and wanting to assess against those sort of adequacy criteria that, that I talked about. Now... Those four frameworks actually have a lot in common. Um, so first, it, it, it has come to be accepted in a world where the distinctions between the developed and the developing world are uh, fading, tending to break down, in which global challenges are becoming more and more prominent. Uh, it's becoming accepted that the post-2015 development framework uh, should be a, a universal one. Uh, not, it's not just a set of goals for, for developing countries. Second, there are a bunch of gaps, as I've said, in the MDGs, which I'll divide for convenience into topical gaps and tactical gaps. And there's general agreement that you can pretty much categorise the topical gaps into, into three baskets, uh, one relating to jobs and growth, one relating to governance, peace and security, 
and one relating to environmental sustainability. The tactical gaps, um, inequality, vulnerability. Right? So there's a pretty high degree of agreement um, on all of these points. On, on the inequality point, there's general agreement that the post-MDG goals and targets should look beyond averages and be used to improve the lot of all poor people. Um, in other words, that exclusion and inequality have to be made visible and targets adopted for their reduction. On the vulnerability point, there's also a general recognition that development progress needs to be uh, more robust um, with the risks and impacts of reversal mitigated. So each of the frameworks on offer therefore pr proposes universal goals and um, that, that build upon the MDGs while seeking to deal in, in uh, one way or another with, with those five gaps um, that I've just outlined there. So now I want to go into a little bit more detail on the um, high-level panel framework. Now, this framework isn't necessarily superior to, to the others. Um, or even markedly different in, in a lot of ways. Um, but it does have the highest degree of, of political authority and, and profile. That's what high-level panels are supposed to, to, to provide. So it represents the, the consensus position of uh, a group of 27 people dominated by former and current political figures, and of course co-chaired by th these three serving heads of government um, from a wealthy country, a least developed country, and a, a fast-growing middle-income country. So let's have a, a look at some of the main features of the, uh, the, the framework that's been proposed by the, the high-level panel um, in its report at the uh, end of May. So I'll go... This is fairly descriptive, so I'll go through reasonably quickly. Um, first, the, the high-level panel report proposes what it calls five transformational shifts, um, together with 12 illustrative goals and 54 related targets. It's a big number. Um, so there are four or five targets per goal, and the overall structure looks like that. Um, and, yeah, as I say, a lot of targets underneath each one of those uh, proposed goals. So it's, as you can see, uh, pretty MDG-like, but I'm not going to dwell on, on the specifics there. Okay. Um, now, these transformational shifts are, are, are basically meant to identify the differences between this framework and the MDG framework, the shifts of perspective relative to the MDGs. And that's certainly true in relation to four of those gap areas that I talked about, inequality, sustainability, jobs and growth, and governance and security. The fifth so-called shift um, is, is about creating a new global partnership for development, which corresponds pretty much to the existing MDG 8. And it really is quite hard to figure out how the new global partnership differs from, from the old. I'm not sure that there's a shift, let alone a transformational one. <laughs> so those shifts of perspective are systematically reflected in, in the illustrative goals, um, um, in that they have dedicated goals for each of those things, growth and employment, peace and stability, good governance and effective institutions. Now, a headline feature of the framework is the adoption of an end poverty target. Um, not for the first time in world history. Now, this is combined with an approach to inequality that establishes um, nationally defined po poverty reduction targets um, when, once you get above the level of extreme poverty. 
and also declares that no human development target can be met unless it's met by the most vulnerable groups. Right? So all three of those things have to happen. You've got to get people out of extreme poverty, um, move them up from there, um, and you don't get to say that any human development target in health or education or whatever is, is met unless it's met by the most vulnerable groups. So, just on a couple of specifics, um, environmental sustainability, which of course was pretty weakly treated in the MDGs, gets a couple of goals here relating to sustainable energy and sustainable resource management. There's no climate goal, as some would have wished, but, but uh, the, the final goal on the Global Partnership for Development does have a target uh, reflecting the existing two-degree consensus. Um, and at, at the goal level, the, the HLP framework uh, doesn't actually drop anything that was in the MDG framework, but it does consolidate the health goals, it beefs up the education and gender goals quite a bit and introduces a, a separate water and sanitation goal, which that used to be in MDG 7. Um, and as I said, the high-level panel's goal 12 looks a lot like the old MDG 8 with some minor variations. Um, now finally, and this is important, which I'll come back to, quantitative targets for each goal um, are either set at zero, um, or some other minimum standard, or in a lot of cases they're, they're set um, at the national level, level. They're left to the discretion of national governments, so quite a, a polarised approach. Okay, on the other frameworks that I put up, I'll be very brief. Um, the Bellagio and let's say the, the SACS framework uh, contain pretty similar goals. Um, the SACS framework also includes an end poverty target. Um, and a, a similar sort of commitment to monitor the development progress of the poorest and most disadvantaged. Um, that framework proposes a substantially stronger inequality target, uh, as listed there. And the Bellagio framework is a bit different. It's interested mainly in indicators. Their view is that um, targets just fix the desired quantity of whatever you're measuring, uh, so it doesn't actually get hung up on targets. It doesn't even propose specific targets for poverty reduction or anything else. Okay, um, now all three of those frameworks, the high-level panel, SACS, Bellagio, um, they envisage including a lot of targets that are, that are neither zero nor global, targets that have to be set at the national level. In fact, the HLP framework um, has about half of its targets in that category. 26 of 54 targets are flagged as candidates for setting at the national level. Um, and those are a couple of minor points which I'll, I'll skip over. Okay, so let's have a quite a quick look at the high-level panel framework in terms of adequacy against those criteria that uh, I mentioned. So first, so those were the three criteria. Um, so the relevance question was whether anything is fundamentally lacking in the HLP framework um, or almost fundamentally lacking. And I think that, in fact, two fundamental things are only barely there. Um, those two, which might seem surprising. So let's look first at, at uh, poverty. We can leave aside, I think, the question of the feasibility of the end poverty goal for now, though there has to be a large 
question mark over the feasibility of lifting the last half billion people out of absolute poverty by 2030, um, even, if, even if you were to resort to uh, direct cash transfers to the residual poor in order to eliminate that poverty gap. The more immediate question from a relevance perspective is, is why concentrate on eliminating a form of poverty that, according to the HLP's own projections, is only going to account for about 5% of the global population in 2030, somewhere around 400 million uh, people. Um, when there's such a large reservoir, reservoir of poverty in the sub $2 per day range, pick a number, but let's, let's pick $2 per day, the size of that reservoir of poverty is, is about 2.4 billion people at the moment, or at least it was in 2010. And about half of that group um, exists you know, in between $1.25 and $2 a day. So the high-level panel did have the option of setting a realistic but demanding global target for $2 a day poverty, such as halving it in absolute or proportional terms. Um, but instead they elected to leave um, all but the extreme poor subject to national target setting. So that leaves a pretty large number of poor people outside the circle of global concern and it also undermines the idea that the framework is, is a universal one rather than a framework for donors keen on declaring victory. Um, in addition, if we assume that the HLP framework would actually be effective, there'd be a, a perverse incentive to concentrate aid on uh, very concentrated problems that are at least partly intractable. So, in other words, the, the HLP framework actually adopts the, the, the narrative standpoint of an external actor wanting to articulate but also circumscribe their commitments with respect to global development. So now let's have a look at how the HLP framework handles vulnerability. As I've noted, the, the MDG framework had, had no place at all for vulnerability, um, whether it be vulnerability to natural disasters or other uh, economic shocks. So many have called for the post-MDG framework to rectify that um, and have often urged the inclusion of a goal relating to resilience. Um, most often the emphasis is on resilience in the face of natural disasters, which is to be achieved through better disaster risk reduction and response and recovery capacity. Um, and the HLP, does, the HLP framework does incorporate not a goal, but a target under the poverty goal uh, relating to resilience to natural disasters. Um, it also includes a target under the poverty goal of increasing the proportion of poor and vulnerable people who are covered by social protection systems. And now that latter target relates to a, a broader, uh, more satisfactory notion of vulnerability, but not much broader. The target's about protecting the already disadvantaged, uh, not about ensuring against vulnerability in general. The effect of putting the target under the poverty goal is to give it a redistributive function. If we adopt the standpoint of a low-income earner, it uh, doesn't matter exactly where they are in relation to a, a national or an international poverty line. What matters most to them is not that social protection mechanisms should be available to them when they fall into poverty. What matters most to them is that those mechanisms should help them avoid falling into extreme poverty. So in other words, social security um, is, is an extremely important objective for people in general and low-income people in, in particular, um, and not, I think, adequately reflected in the HLP framework. Um, 
so basically the absence of any reference to vulnerability in, the, in that general sense as the absence of social security, I think, can be seen as a cardinal sin of the MDGs and it has not been reflected in the uh, HLP framework. So on both poverty and vulnerability, the HLP framework is, is no huge advance on the MDG framework and couldn't be expected to remain relevant through to, to 2030. So now on the coherence point, the, the coherence question is whether the, uh, the, the HLP's goals display narrative consistency and are mutually reinforcing. Now, the HLP framework differs from the MDG framework in, in a couple of ways that reduce its narrative consistency. First, it includes a larger number of public policy goals and targets, um, such that those can, those can no longer be easily pushed into, into the background. This makes it harder to think of the framework as simply articulating the needs and aspirations of, of poor people. And second, the public policy goals in the HLP framework uh, include goals at three different levels of public policy, national, international and global. So some of those goals are for developing country governments, uh, some for developed country governments and some for all governments acting in cooperation. And that makes it harder to think of the framework as articulating the goals of any consistent narrative. The HLP's public policy goals are, are certainly important, but mixing them with goals for people um, reduces narrative consistency and, and thereby reduces the utility of the framework for promoting progress toward goals in uh, either category. Now finally on effectiveness. So the effectiveness question is whether the HLP framework um, would in fact retain or increase the motive force attributed to the MDGs. I suggest that it wouldn't. Um, the, HLP's framework heavy the HLP framework's heavy reliance on, on zero targets and other global minimum standards um, is a backward step relative to the MDG framework. And the HLP has not seriously considered how target setting for non-zero targets could be used to create incentives for, for action. So zero targets are set in several important cases, uh, poverty, maternal health, kids out of school, um, and that removes any possibility of differentiation by country for those targets. As noted previously, 26 of the HLP's 54 illustrative targets are flagged as potentially suitable for the application of either zero targets or global minimum standards. So no matter where you start, you have to get to zero or meet the standard, or the world will not get to zero or meet the standard. You can't be a weak link. So this perpetuates that widely criticised feature of the MDGs that I've already discussed, that they've come to be applied at the national level um, so that a country with a terrible starting point can make huge efforts to, to, to meet a certain target and show good progress but still be assessed as a poor performer. So it seems to me inco incoherent to claim that that fairness problem has been addressed through a shift to nationally defined targets while at the same time proposing zero targets or minimum standards for so many important things. Now, zero targets aside, the HLP framework doesn't seriously grapple with the question of how to use targets to achieve effectiveness. The approach they've adopted for target setting involves a blend of targets for the world as a whole, not many, targets that every country must meet, but those are the zero and minimum standard targets, and some variable targets to be defined nationally. Um, the MDG framework effectively required all countries to contribute to a global proportional reduction target by meeting identical national proportional, proportional reduction targets. Now, that might have been inappropriate, but the HLP's approach um, 
is worse in that it fails to establish any sort of contributory relationship at all between national efforts and, and the global effort, which greatly reduces the effectiveness of the HLP framework. So to sum up, the HLP framework and its sort of cohort of, of other new frameworks is it's certainly a more complete catalogue of the things that are on everybody's minds, um, but it replicates or to some extent aggravates some, some core problems with the MDG framework. Um, its relevance is weakened by, by its focus on the elimination of a type of poverty that's all but vanishing anyway, and its treatment of vulnerability could be better. Um, its inclusion of more enabling public policy goals um, can't be criticised, but blending them with goals for people um, blending ends and means tends to reduce the narrative consistency of, of the framework. Um, and finally, the framework's effectiveness is seriously hampered by its reliance on zero targets and, and minimum standards, um, and by its reliance on national targets that don't have any contributory relationship to global targets. So that's, that's my broad assessment. So I've, I've looked at... All right, I'm nearly there. So I've looked at how the MDG framework and the, the HLP framework and its friends measure up against those adequacy criteria, which is not all that well. I'll now conclude by just sketching very briefly a better way of, of defining some of the rules of this, of this game, mostly picking up on some of the remarks that I've already made. Um, so I'll touch on four things, ends and means, goals for people, goals for public policy, and target setting. And I've already covered most of this. Um, I won't dwell any further on the HLP framework's poverty goal. As I've said, I generally want to avoid talking about individual goals and targets, but I should reinforce that without a credible and relevant poverty reduction goal, no post-MDG framework is likely to gain traction in the long term. So, ends and means. Let's go back to that distinction between um, ends-related goals and means-related goals in, in these frameworks. So there is some initial appeal to the argument that we should just stick to ends rather than means um, in the articulation of global goals. Once we start listing all the pre prerequisites for human development, um, we end up with a lot of boring clutter or we end up with a lot of arguments. Um, also, it might seem that the inclusion of enabling goals is, is somehow inconsistent with the fundamental idea of results-driven development. Um, and that's pretty much the, the view taken in the UN task team's interim re report, by the way. It puts enabling goals in the background. But against that, there is a pretty strong counter-argument. Without certain public policy choices on the part of governments uh, or collectives of governments, development might not merely be impeded, it, it might be stymied or, or reversed. In some cases, the democratic process will fix that. It'll see that governments make appropriate choices. In other cases, especially where international and global uh, public policy issues, issues are at stake, there might not be strong enough incentives for governments to adopt policies that benefit developing countries or, or the world as a whole. So if it's important to set a goal for poverty reduction, how could it not be important to set a goal for climate change mitigation or a range of other things? Goal definition and target setting is at least as important, if, if not more so, in connection with public policy matters as it is in connection with matters of personal well-being. If that's accepted, the obvious course of action is not to downgrade or put in the background the enabling goals, but to separate them from goals for people. 
uh, and in fact try to do a better job of defining associated targets and indicators uh, for those enabling goals than has been done to date. So without any great science, let's, let's have a quick go on, on two slides uh, at, at doing that, at, at defining a broad goal set for people and a broad goal set for public policy. Now, it, it helps here that people in general, unlike governments and donors, tend to articulate much the same set of priorities the world over. Uh, for example, in the World Bank's Voices of the Poor study. Um, people generally want things like this. Decent work, good health, quality education, social security, freedom from discrimination, violence, and a benign, stable, natural environment. Um, so, six things, and you, you could argue um, about the composition of that list, but that's, that, that, that just gives a sense of, of how you might elaborate goals for people in a way that keeps the list short and defines broad, complementary, and mutually reinforcing uh, objectives. Um, and one point to note about that approach is each one of those goals can be regarded as corresponding to a right or entitle, entitlement of some kind. Um, it, and, it, and it seems appropriate and consistent with the Millennium Declaration that um, that, that should be the case. Now, on goals for public policy. If we take a very broad brush approach, um, these goals might relate to the provision of global and regional public goods important for development. They might relate to the mobilisation of adequate financing and the achievement of policy coherence for development. And they might relate to support for national public infrastructure, including effective public institutions. And in fact, those three things correspond exactly with the three levels of public policy that I mentioned before. Um, national, international, and global. And it would be possible, I think, to define three broad enabling goals corresponding to each of those three levels of public policy with associated targets and, and indicators. Um, so these enabling goals could be presented separately from ends-related goals um, of the kind that I set out a second ago. They would still have a foreground role, especially in intergovernmental contexts, but they generally not figure so much in public communication. Um, the grouping together of enabling goals in that way could actually help to ensure a more consistent and rigorous approach to setting quantitative targets. Um, I'm just skip over a little bit here. So let me finish with a focus on target setting, if I can find the right slide. Okay. So we've seen that one-size-fits-all targets are unfair to a lot of countries, and that point particularly extends to zero targets as proposed by the HLP. And we've also seen that nationally defined targets without any contributory relationship to global targets provide no useful incentive effect. So a better, a better approach to target setting might have a couple of elements. Um, it, it, it would be based on non-zero, absolute and global stretch targets, for one thing. And it would allow countries themselves to define national targets as contributions to the achievement of a global target. The use of absolute quantities would remove the possibility of imposing a, a, a global target on national governments and would make visible the global burdens to be shared among the countries of the world. The casting of nation nationally defined targets as contributions toward global targets would allow governments appropriate flexibility um, while ensuring that individual and collective contributions are monitored against global targets. 
So clearly in that situation, global targets would, would not simply be the sum of national targets. There would be a gap, a very significant gap in most cases. But however, this, the size of that gap would actually be a useful measure of the distance between what's judged achievable in principle, the global target, and what would be delivered on the basis of existing levels of political will and national capacity. In addition, minding that gap would help concentrate attention on those countries who could, maybe with external assistance or under their own steam, contribute more, uh, especially those whose national targets would have them contributing well below their baseline share of the relevant global problem. And in the case of a country that's willing to do more but unable to do so without external assistance, they might actually specify two national targets, one relating to what they can do under their own steam and one relating to what they judge they could do uh, with external assistance. So that would establish a more contributory relationship between national targets and, and global targets. All right, so to sum up, um, my conclusion from an analysis of the HLP framework and its cohort is that the, the, this post-MDG game will be much more likely to reach a, a useful conclusion if it adheres to a, a few simple rules, and this is a quick attempt to articulate those. Um, so the principal goals that define the, the post-MDG framework should be articulated as goals for people. A set of goals for public policy, which are enabling goals, um, is also important and should be placed in the foreground but, but separated from the principal goals for, for the purposes of negotiation and communication. Those goals for public policy, the enabling goals, should be articulated at three different levels, national, international and global, and not lumped together as they often are at the moment under ill-fitting headings like global governance or the global partnership for, for development. All of the goals both the principal goals and the enabling goals um, need to have demanding and realistic global targets attached, as that was the animating idea behind the MDGs. Such targets should be non-zero and absolute to avoid that one-size-fits-all problem, and corresponding national targets should be set through appropriate national deliberative processes um, with the gaps quantified, monitored and used to inform dialogue and resource allocation. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Robin. And remember, everyone, you, you heard it first here in this room. So uh, anyone like to ask some questions? Provide comments? I know we're a bit out of time, but we'll go for... There's not so many people here. We'll uh, go for a bit longer. Yeah, and then there's a question at the back as well. Okay. Thanks, Robin. Um, and as usual, very uh, strong analysis, um, some pretty challenging things for us to think about there. And that's really useful. I, I like the way you've separated the, the, the ends from the means and, and you've given us a lot to think about around zero targets and national targets and where we should come down there. I wanted to just ask about where Australia should sit in this and Australia wasn't all that involved in coming to the original agreement on the NDGs. It's not something that Australia's traditionally sought to be very influential on. Should we get more involved in the post-2015 discussion, both from a government level and academic level, um, and what could Australia bring to this? Um, do you think that that might be a different perspective from what's coming from other countries? Mm. Yeah, um, well, there's a few angles on that, but I'll try and be brief. So it, a lot will depend on who our Prime Minister is, of course, in a, a week or so. Um, one, of, one of the alternatives would be, I think, very engaged. 
But whichever one it is, um, Australia is of course chairing the G20 next year. Um, and while some might not think it's the job of the G20 to be talking about the post-2015 goals, they're going to do it. Um, Russia had already put it on the agenda for this year. And inevitably, when you've got a group of leaders together meeting uh, you know, in pretty close proximity to ne next year's General Assembly, um, th there's going to be a need for the, for the two bodies to communicate. And for Australia as chair of the G20, including as chair of the G20 Development Working Group, um, to have a pretty clear set of ideas around how this should run. Um, so those are just process points. On the, on the substance, um, I, mean, I, I certainly didn't come at this uh, uh, as an enthusiast for, for the MDGs and saw it, I, I think, more as a case of um, ensuring that whatever framework is, is developed um, in some way buttresses um, support for, for aid programs. So I think I see it primarily in terms of downside risk. Um, if it's possible, through those multiple processes that I listed up there, to uh, get out a framework which really is clear and has motivational value, um, it doesn't matter so much whether it's got effectiveness in other ways, in terms of development outcomes, um, but if it, if it has the right sort of impact on, on public policy makers um, and can perhaps contribute to the maintenance or the growth of aid budgets from 2015, that'd be great. Um, and I think everything depends on, on getting the, the logic straight enough um, that all sorts of pressures can be resisted and, and a core set of goals that are simple and clear can, can sort of come through the pack. People have identified uh, about the of culture. To what extent has culture been stumbling block in the MPGs and to what extent can it be harnessed to achieve motivation uh, Yeah, I can say, I, th I think development agencies forever have had a problem with uh, what to do um, about sort of cultural aspirations. Um, I think most people who work in development do actually recognise that it's a, it's a big part of people's lives, cultural preservation. Um, but it is so hard to, um, you know, it's a hard sell when dealing with a politician to say, yeah, I'm, I'm spending your money on a... Um, an architectural preservation activity in Vietnam or, uh, or uh, at Borobudur or, or something. So um, I don't think it's ever going to come through as an explicit priority. Um, but I think if you take broadly the approach that I'm proposing here, which very much focuses on the interests of, of you know, the, indi the, the typical individual, I think culture will come in somewhere around the edges of, of some of those goals. It won't be primary, um, but I think it will come somewhere around the edges. Yes, thank you. I have a question about the, the length of time for the post-2015 MDG period. You made a reference to 2030, which made me assume that maybe all these frameworks are aiming at 2030. And I just wonder if, if in the frameworks they've actually paid any or address the issue of how long it will take to achieve certain targets, whether 15 years is the, the now accepted length of time for these kind of long frameworks that are coming into, into position, and whether you agree with that. Um, certainly by default it seems to be the accepted time frame. Um, th this is something that still has to be negotiated and agreed. But I think everybody, for the purpose of argument, is, is um, pitching their targets at, at 2030 because it's several political cycles away. It's a long enough time frame that you could expect to see process. 
uh, progress, and of course there's always a lag. So the last few years of that, you know, you won't really know what happened until kind of 2033. So I think for convenience, everyone's assuming 2030 at the moment, um, and you know, it's, it's an arbitrary choice. Um, Thanks, Robin. Um, I just wanted to ask early on, you mentioned that there was a private forum as well, looking at this personal energy world. Can you tell us a little bit about where they're up to? Because, you know, the dialogue internationally increasingly is that it's going to be the private sector that's going to really have that development, not development agencies. So um, I'm just wondering where, where they, what they've got up to and how you see them as, as playing into this whole oil yeah, look, um, best if I just point you to the report. So the UN Global Compact participants have um, finalised a report in, I think, June, um, which is an input to um, all of these other processes, the Open Working Group process. Um, and as I read it, there's a heavy emphasis um, on, the, on the productive sectors and increasing investment in, in the productive sectors, as, as you would expect. Uh, and of course, on the potential for public-private partnerships, um, but I'll, I'll point you to the report afterwards. Okay, one of the last questions. Before we have to go. Yeah, Robin, thanks very much indeed. Um, I mean, one thing that strikes me that you, various UN bodies, um, progress, um, is really the credibility of any framework, uh, and that is something that's also, to some extent, it's too, uh, is, is or in my view should be linked to uh, the, uh, uh, the statistical base uh, that's used. And whilst what you're proposing, if I understand you correctly, is to equal sense of goals, I'm just wondering to what extent um, any framework of that kind is really going to be constrained by the fact that. Current statistics, statistics, socio-economic, um, won't necessarily capture um, the sorts of goals that we want to include in a people-centered framework. Yeah, and that's that's the basis of that interesting difference between the the Bellagio process and and the others. Um, they started from the assumption that you, you've just got to begin with the indicators. Um, You've got to have your broad goals reasonably straight, then go straight to the indicators, figure out what's measurable, and then define targets, you know, just fix the quantity of what you want in relation to those indicators. All the other frameworks don't do that. They start with the goals, then they move to targets, and they think, we'll figure out how to do the measurement later. Um, and, you know, the experience with the MD MDG suggests that, that is a, a very ambitious uh, <laughs> objective. So um, it, it's, it's absolutely right, and... Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for the way the, the Bellagio team have, have approached that, um, beginning with the indicators rather than obsessing about the targets. Okay. Well, I'm afraid I might have to uh, draw proceedings to a close uh, now. Anyway, we'll be taking this work forward. I'm sure there'll be a blog coming shortly and a discussion paper, and we appreciate your comments and uh, ongoing engagement, and uh, let's see if we can make a contribution uh, to this debate. So thanks, everyone, for coming, and thank you, Robert. been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, 
visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.